attention, attention please. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is on the air. Welcome to the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. My name is Christopher Thomason. I am your host for this and many, many more trips down memory lane. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is a podcast dedicated to collecting the stories, the history, the memories of Camp Ojibwa for Boys in Eagle River, Wisconsin, founded 1928. This week's guest on the podcast, the 50th episode of the Camp Ojibwa History Project Podcast is Dennis S. Rosen. Camp director extraordinaire Dennis Rosen and I sit down for a great conversation. It's the 50th episode, so you know that it's going to be a double shot. Part one drops today. Now, that's what you're listening to. Part two, Thursday. Both parts have a lot of great stuff. Great, great conversation. So I was very excited to have Denny as the 50th episode I think that that is perfectly fitting, both as an honor to him for his years of service to Camp Ojibwa, and also because of his integral role in the History Project, getting it off the ground, keeping it rolling. It's been incredible. Speaking of the project, before we get to Denny, a quick State of the Camp Ojibwa History Project address. As you know, the project started in earnest a little over a year ago and has been incredible. Almost immediately, it was so much bigger and broader in scope than I ever expected, and I'm so proud that I've had the opportunity to sit with guys, talk about camp, to learn about camp, to uncover the history, to see it all laid out. It's just as someone who loves camp the way I do, it means the world to me. And when I hear back from you guys who are telling me, you know, you listen to the podcast every week. Hey, I heard this podcast. That was a really good one. I listen to it every Monday on my drive to work. I listen to it in the gym. It just means the world to me and it fills my heart. And I'm so happy that, that the word is getting out to you. The whole point of the project is to help, spread the camp love and to, to tighten the, the bonds on the Ojibwa family. And I think it's doing that. And that is amazing. You know, what's been going on so far with the project, just to fill you in on a little bit of what's coming up in the future. In a couple of weeks, just before the BPS men's league heads up to camp, you're going to hear from Todd Hayden, current general and captain of the, BPS trip. He and I had an interview. And then that Wednesday, just before the guys drive up, we recorded a little BPS round table to get guys fired up for the trip. Uh, I've got a handful of guys here with me for that one, including founding father of the trip, Darren J. Annixter. Make sure you tune in for that one. Even if you don't know anything about BPS, you can, get, you can learn all about it and you're going to probably want to start coming. And if you do know about BPS, it's just basically 
a show full of inside jokes and fun and getting fired up for the best weekend of the summer. At least for those who don't get to spend the entire summer up there. So look forward to that. Throughout the summer, you're going to hear more of the podcast that happened while I was touring the country, interviewing guys from around. The website updated currently with the Warriors all the way through 1996. There's still a small hole between 79 and 83, but I will have that fixed soon. Everything else is up there. All the other Warriors click through. New projects coming to the website will include Medicine Men. I have several years worth now from various eras. I'm going to get those digitized and put on. As well as the plaque project, photos of every plaque in the rec hall and mess hall. And I just got back audio, and this is a big shout out and thank you to Rick Patter. I saw him while I was in L.A., and he had reel-to-reel audio recordings from the late 60s, early 70s of Stunt Nights, Jubilees, you name it. Um, Super cool. So I just got that stuff back. You're going to see that stuff going up there as well. Give that a listen. I think it'll be super cool. Also, in the future, we're heading toward May 6th, 2017. If you love Camp Ojibwa, you should put that on your calendar now. May 6th, 2017. That is OJ90, the 90th summer celebration for Camp Ojibwa. It's going to be happening. Uh, I don't think I can announce where yet. We're still working to finalize that. But if it's, uh, if it's what I think it's going to be, it's going to be very cool. It's going to be very cool anyway. This is going to be the only party that could rival it was the 50th anniversary. I was not old enough to be there, obviously. And I think this is going to actually blow that one out of the water. This is going to be an incredible celebration. We're super fired up about it. Anyone who loves camp is going to want to be there. This is going to be one of those once or twice in a lifetime experiences. Going to bring everyone together. The history project is going to be a big part of that as well. You're going to see some cool stuff. We're going to bring the museum there. So put it on your calendar, May 6, 2017. Lastly, let me just say thank you. Thank you to all of you. If you've ever listened to a podcast, if you've ever downloaded one, if you've ever listened to all of the podcasts, if you've ever told a friend about them, if you've ever sent a couple of bucks our way to help the project keep going, if you bought a brick, if you sent a lot of bucks our way to keep the project going. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. You're the reason this thing is going. You're the reason this thing continues. None of it could have happened without you. So truly and deeply, I say, thank you. Okay, enough of that. Here we go. Dennis Rosen on the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. Dennis Rosen, 58 years at Camp Ojibwe, all on the staff. And what was your first year? My first year was 1959. And you've been there ever since except for one, correct? Uh, I was 
my mission in 67 kept me away. Absolutely. We'll get to that certainly later. So how do you first find out about Camp Ojibwe? Uh, I was uh, taught Delta Phi at the University of Illinois, and there was a notice on a fraternity bulletin board if anyone was interested in the summer position. And I called Alan, had an interview, got hired. Nice. Just that easy. Did you know you didn't know anything else? Just no. totally cold? I, I had never been there. I didn't know any much about it. Did you meet anybody then before you went there, or was it just a phone interview? Uh, no, I met Al personally. Oh, I see. When I came in the city. Does he, at that point, does he give you, like, slides? Does he treat you like a camper, no. or is it just more like, this is the job and this no, is No, just an interview. What did you think of Al? Uh, in an interview situation, it's a little bit different. You know, you don't get to realize the magnitude of an individual when you're sitting across the table or asking questions until you actually see him alive at camp. Sure. All right, fair enough. So you go to camp that first year. Mm -hmm. What's the first thing you remember about getting to camp? Being excited. Being excited to be there. Uh, I I had this, uh, I was in cabin one with the, Dizzy Netskin was one of my junior counselors at the time, and just couldn't wait for the kids to get there. Mm. Was at that time was pro, uh, pre-camp as long as it is now or longer? I don't remember. Yeah, but you had some period of time where you I learned the ropes so. and whatnot. Probably. I didn't. I only knew. I'm not even sure if I knew too many guys that, that were there. I was gonna say once you got there, you did you probably really, didn't know him. A couple maybe from from Champagne. Right on. No, I didn't have any friends there. Had you gone to? Let's back up a little bit. Where did you grow up? I grew up on the west side of the city, Chicago. Okay. Were you a camp kid? Uh, I went to uh, Henry Horner uh, when I was in third grade. And that's a, like a Chicago Boys Club camp. And then when I got to high school, I went to my football coach owned Camp Big Chief. His name was Sam Freilich. And I was up there for a good two or three years. Nice. Where's that? That was in Hayward, Wisconsin, on Grindstone Lake Oh, Hayward, Wisconsin. Very nice. Very nice. So you already had a little bit of an idea of what? camp life was like mm-hmm. and what you were getting into. Yeah. What were your things that when you were at camp, was it a sports camp as well or was it primarily football or? Uh, at the, my coach's camp? Mm-hmm. No, it was a generalized camp. But then at, once the season was over, the whole football team came up there and that's where we worked out. Nice. That's fun. Yeah, it was. Good location. Get, a little, get away. All boys camp? Uh, except for the kitchen staff. <laughs> <laughs> Some traditions are just... I know. <laughs> All right. So you come to Camp Ojibwe. It's your first year. You're in cabin one. You got Disnitzkin. Who else is in there with you? Uh, a fellow named Larry Shuckman. Okay. And then I don't remember. And you got five, ten kids? Probably. Mm-hmm. How's the season go? Tell me a little bit about that. what that's like being a cabin counselor your first year. It's great. You know, it's, uh, it's like it was just such a natural thing for me. I've always uh, had a desire to work with those that are not quite as good. Now, these kids, they were all normal, but they were young kids, and so the ability to mold them was fantastic. Mm. You know, it's like 
almost like clay that you can mold them into what you wanted them to be. And I, I had fun with them, but they didn't know that it was fun. Like every night we had to brush our teeth, they had to stand in front of their beds with a toothbrush in one hand and a toothpaste in the other hand, and I would march them and, you know, just <laughs> just fun stuff for me. Yeah, for sure. I did hear a story about uh, you winning Honor Cabin and wanting to make sure you kept the cabin clean. And so uh, the person telling me the story tell, was in the cabin, supposedly. That's how I heard the story. I, mean, I wouldn't let the kids lay on their beds. Right. They'd come back from a meal, and, and right. you didn't want them to lay on the bed to mess anything up because you wanted to keep the honor cabin, so you right. made them sleep under the bed. Okay. <laughs> the perfect rest period. All right. But, you know, the fact of the matter is it's something they'll remember wasn't har- harmful. It would, uh, they respected the work that they put in. Certainly. These were little kids. They worked hard. They... they um, the, you don't need to have a lot of rules. Uh, I learned that at an early age. It's too hard to keep track of rules. And you don't need to punish. You just need to uh, have a consistent mentality in terms of, of your expectations and don't move the line in the sand. Well put. We, uh, we try to go with that a little bit in Cabin 14 these days. The, there's really only one rule, and it's don't be a dick. So... <laughs> It's kind of the same idea. Uh, generally speaking, my rule is don't interfere with my good time. Yeah. Well put. That's it, right? Yeah. <laughs> it really covers everything. It does. So you come to camp that first year, and things apparently go well. You have a great time. Very well. You love the food? I don't remember. That food was never important to me. <laughs> then I'll take that to me. Eh. Well, I, I, Probably I, served I, don't, peas I can't back remember then. it. Didn't, I don't care about that. Sure. Um, but you decide to come back. I was asked back. Is that why you came back? Because you were asked? I wanted to come back, and I was asked back. In my second year, I was assistant waterfront director with Ira Keishan. Nice. Live in the shack? Mm-hmm. So one year in a cabin, and then now you're in the shack. Correct. Uh, the shack has a few benefits. It's a, it, it has a lot of benefits. You're not necessarily bold into campers. It's very beneficial. <laughs> if you want a little extra time off, say, at night, that's, that's available to you? The shack is a legendary place. Sure. Would you, would you like to explain any further what you mean? No, but if the walls could talk, it could be a movie. <laughs> so you come back, you're the assistant waterfront director. Mm-hmm. Um, they must, Alan Pearl must love you if they're uh, moving you up that quick. Oh, I, not, probably no one else wanted the job. Well, <laughs> fair enough. Okay. You know. Uh, one or the other. I don't think I ever went in the water. Sure. Well, you were the assistant, so... Waterfront director was a fellow named Henry Baum. Ah. Henry uh, or... Henry. David was his son. Gotcha. And I was never at camp when David was there. So uh, I, I didn't know David Baum. I see. And I, it was, you know, I mean, guys come to camp e- even today. You know, you got to get specialized people for the waterfront. So finding people that are willing to do it... You know, I would love to water ski... In those days, we didn't have gas, so I would drive a boat uh, to Boat Sport to get gas, mm. and he would water ski, and then he would drive it back, and I would water ski. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it was real nice. That, now, is that, that's pretty early in the water skiing, right? Like, that's, mm-hmm. that's a pretty new thing. I think we had one thing. or two boats. Yeah. What other things did the waterfront offer at that time? I mean, obviously, you didn't have two pretty much, or whatever, but... Pretty much the same types of things that we have now, but not to the same extent. Mm. We may have had two ski boats. We didn't have any pontoon boats. One of the first purchases that I made when I took over camp was to buy a pontoon boat. I always wanted a pontoon boat. I thought it would be great for kids. 
were there, uh, one of my favorite things are, and I've only just seen video or in pictures of it, are those uh, bicycle things mm-hmm. that went in the water. I suppose those are probably too dangerous to really. No, the the water bikes, mm-hmm. uh, they were chain bikes, and they, now they have more sophisticated ones, uh, and they have big wheel bikes and so on and so forth. But there's, uh, there's so much traffic on the lake that uh, I feel uncomfortable with them. Sure. That makes sense. They look really cool. So do our ski boats. Right. <laughs> and our new fishing boat. Oh, it was great. <laughs> so uh, we, can, we can let some secrets out here. So this year there's a, a, a new, quote-unquote, new fishing boat at camp. Well, the boat has been at camp before. It's called the Minnow. It was a chase boat for sailboat races. And uh, I worked on this, this winter in developing a new waterfront program. And the waterfront program was, is an instructional program. And I took seven different areas of camp. And in each area, I made a beginning, intermediate, and advanced. And then we outlined all the things. And once you pass the beginner one, you get a beginning ribbon. It's really cool. Then an intermediate ribbon. And then once you pass advanced, you get a a star medal. If you get a star medal in all seven categories, you get a beautiful trophy. Wow. Wow. So when I was working on this, uh, and it's only going to be for cabins one to six. Okay. um, because I want them to develop more skills. Sure. You know, as an example, uh, beginning waterfront swimming would be pass the swimming test using relatively good form. And to me, it would be swim four laps. Okay. And advance would be swim eight laps. Okay, sure. So then we got to fishing, you know. And uh, one of the things that I wanted to do is to have... Two kids go out with one staff person who you know, will designate someone to help run the fishing program. Mm-hmm. And then they have to learn to tie their knots, and they have to bait their hooks, and they have to show the skills of casting. And so I wanted to have this little boat, and it's a great little boat. It's got a, an automatic anchor thing that raises and lowers. It's got a trolling motor. It's got a fish finder on it. Awesome. And it's, but it, it's small. And it's compact, so it could only hold, like, two campers and one staff person. Perfect. Yeah, it's so, so cool. So uh, once you go out and you could demonstrate the skills, then you become an advanced fisherman. That's very nice. Very nice. Yeah, it's great. It's a great program. Like, so beginning stuff would be the safety and the terminology of stuff. Sure, that makes sense. So your love for the waterfront still lives on. No, my love for teaching still lives on. Mm. doesn't have to be waterfront. I never had a love for the waterfront. It was just the place where it was. Uh, it was something that they asked, you know, would you help organize the waterfront? They, they saw that I had real good organizational skills when I was a counselor. Nice. I mean, I didn't even know what collegiate was, and I came in third place. Well, I was going to say, that's not something everyone knows. So you coached the week mm-hmm. once, once only? Once. And uh, your assistant coach? Jay Mall. Excellent. Um, do you remember anything about the week? Uh, oh, the, the worst stunt probably ever. <laughs> My stunt was started off with uh, open sesame. <laughs> Sesahu. Sesame, open the curtains. And that was a highlight <laughs> of our stunt. <laughs> we got blasted. Nice. What school were you guys? Uh, we were Illinois. Very nice. <laughs> It's so different now because we have so many guys. Like, you would never be a collegiate coach as a first-year staff man. Right. I right. mean, we've got guys that have been there 10 years and don't coach. Mm-hmm. 
So I don't, I don't know how they picked the coaches. I don't think that they picked it by seniority. I think they've tried to I, – I don't remember. I don't know. I had never been there before. I think – what I've heard, I think, is that it really was Alan Pearl kind of said – or um, Sid or whoever was the head counselor worked with them and was kind of like... See, now, Sid wasn't there my uh, second year. That's... Or my first year. Sid was not there my first year at camp. That's so. the year he went to the toy company, right? Correct. Tyco. And so when he came back, I was at the waterfront for one year. And then that, then the following year, he had passed away. Right. Suddenly, like in April or May. And that's when they asked me... Because at this time I was a PE major, I moved into cabin 13 and I started the program. I was a counselor in cabin 13 with Lee Schneidman, Sandy Marvitz, Wild Bill. I don't remember his last name. Wow! And that's when you took that's you took over the program Mm -hmm. and started to revitalize it with your organizational skills. I think would be safe to say. Uh, Without very much background at camp, it was. I had to rely a lot on creativity, ingenuity, and people that had been there before. But there was a, um, a tendency for some people to uh, not be happy with me because I, I was in a position that they probably wanted. And the reason I was in that position is because, in my opinion, to the Schwartz family, I represented continuity, where a lot of these other people might have been going on to be lawyers or business people or accountants or whatever. Sure. So there is a there is a resistance force against me. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, and I, and I think that's something that happens at camp, you know, in in various bigger or smaller ways, is a resistance to change. Yeah. And you know, a certain type of camp guy is going to feel entitled to certain things. But as you say, right. you know, you made a commitment. You're saying I'm going to be a PE teacher. My summers are now free forever. Yeah, I mean, I could rationalize it any way I want, but the fact of the matter is, is that there was a group of guys that. Didn't like. Plus, my personality was pretty aggressive. Huh. And interesting. So, I wouldn't have expected that. So, the more grief that they gave me, that's when I developed what I call my shit list. You know, I think I've heard of it once or twice. Uh, was there an inciting moment? Was there like a, the beginning when it really started? Or no, it was just that you know, there's always some things that you, no one really wants to do, so I would assign them to it. <laughs> Those pegs are very difficult peg to find. Peg duty was not a shitless job, regardless of what anyone ever said. I was going to say, everyone who's ever done peg duty says it was. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Uh, peg duty was at the far field. I made uh, stakes with red tops that we would outline a, a track and figuring that you'd be able to see it. The problem was after you never found them the second year. And so every year we had to do peg duty. <laughs> and it was like, oh, my God. And one year, I'm sure you've heard this, there was about four or five guys out at the far field doing peg duty, and Pearl uh, drove by the far field, except it was so hot they were totally naked. <laughs> did, did anyone ever tell you that story? Yeah, I think a little bit of yeah. that's come up. <laughs> Na- naked. So they, she didn't say anything to them, but, oh, my God, did I get chewed out. <laughs> That's fantastic. Tell me, so now that you're there at camp and you're working with them, tell me a little bit about that Alan Pearl, the Alan Pearl that you, you come to know through camp. Uh, well, I, I sat every meal next to Pearl. And uh, uh, we had a wonderful relationship because she was very prim and proper with managing stuff. So I would do things intentionally 
to get one of the elbow jabs. <laughs> Every time I would uh, ask for something or reach for something or do something that didn't have the proper etiquette or manners at the table, which I did intentionally, I <laughs> one of those uh, elbow jabs. <laughs> And then, you know, people would laugh because they knew that I was teasing her and then so on and so forth. But she was very, um, she had very high moral standards and was the sort of the code of conduct uh, enforcer hmm. at camp. And Al was just, uh, he didn't get upset about anything like that. In all the years I was at camp, I only heard Al swear once. Al would go out of his way to make sure that people that when they came on camp were treated as guests, you know, as not as strangers. You know, if you come as a stranger, you leave as a family member. You know, he would send cookies to town merchants in camp, you know, he'd send steaks or whatever. Yeah. And I think I think that uh, he instilled a lot of that in you. A lot of that got carried on. I think that there's no question that the, the role model that he presented was a carryover to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So you're at camp, you're having a great time, you don't win the week, but now you're, you're program director, you start to... No, I was, I was a coach my first year. Right. Then I was at the waterfront, right. I was not a coach. Right, you then only coached I was in, the one time. Then I was in 13. Now you're in, in 13. those days, you remember that there was no cabin 14, so right. uh, cabin, cabin 14 used to be called the Dad's Lodge, and fathers were allowed to come up and stay at camp. The, one of the f- first things I did was make a cabin 14. You used to be in cabin 13 for two years. And I think uh, making a separate cabin for your second year has increased our kids returning to camp and has helped develop the continuity that our staff pre- presents to us. It's tough to be in the same cabin for two years. Yeah. Now we have that cabin, it's somewhat isolated, treated differently, and uh, it helps them develop a different sense towards camp. To get a 16-year-old to come back, I mean, there's cars, there's girls. I guess there were always cars and girls. I know, but, but the opportunity for us to take the 16-year-olds and uh, had to help develop their leadership skills and their potential to be staff, it's, it's fantastic. It's a great opportunity for the kids and for camp. How long do you live in a cabin? How long are you in 13? I remember one year for sure. I don't remember if I had two years. So, so now I know that, I, I mean, I'm doing the time frame in my head, and I know that coming up soon, we're going to get to a time when you meet a ravishing young redhead. But before we get there, there's a story that you've told me many times that I love about a young lady you may have been dating back home when you started your camp career. I was uh, the captain of our football team, Sullivan, and we played in a league, and one of the teams in the league was Roosevelt. And so a bunch of us went to scout a Roosevelt game a Roosevelt football game. And we were wearing our, of course, Sullivan letter sweaters. And mine was pretty impressive because it was white and everyone else's was blue because I was the captain. Sure. And I was uh, lucky enough to win a lot of letters in, in high school. And so it was, it was impressive. And then after the game, we're standing around talking and there's this little cheerleader from Roosevelt. Oh, my God. And we started talking and then we started dating. And then when we... And then... Uh, it was it was great, and then when we played Roosevelt, all of the players on Roosevelt told her that they were going to kill me. 
Of course. The next time you go out with your boyfriend before our game, say goodbye to him. <laughs> so it was great. We, did, we didn't win the game, but I, I played real well that game, too. Nice. So that goes along, and she's a lovely girl, and things are going along swimmingly. So I go, so then I graduated high school. She's still in high school. I go to the University of Illinois, uh, and we're still dating. You know, she comes down, she sees me, and says, that's when the first year I That went coming to camp. summer is the first year. I told her, you know, that December I'm going to go to camp. And she said, you're away at college? And he said, that's, that's not good. I don't know if I want to continue the relationship. I said, well, I can understand that. So I come back home after camp, and she's now at Northwestern. She, be, she was a, a very talented girl. She was a professional singer, mm. and uh, she was a cheerleader at Northwestern. And I went back to Illinois, but we still carried on. Now it comes time for the summer again, and she said, okay, what's the story? I said, the story is, you know, we're together again. She said, well, what about camp? I said, camp's not in the picture anymore. Until I called her, like, at 7 o'clock in the morning because I was halfway up to camp, and that was the last time we ever saw each other. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> well, it, it was, you know, it was, it was very cool, you know, like the, probably the first girl I ever really liked. Mm-hmm. But camp became I had to make a decision. The big relationship until the other one comes along. So then a couple of years now, let's fast forward a couple of years into the early 60s, mid-60s, I suppose. And uh, you meet a young lady who you're not on a date with. Well, you're on a date with, but you're not, she is well, not. Well, I had a real date. good friend that I met in college. We became roommates in college. His name was uh, Mitchell Krieger. Became a very successful orthopedic surgeon. And uh, we were great friends. We're still great friends, uh, and he was he was out with Sandy, and I was out with I don't remember who, and we double dated, and their relationship didn't go much further than than uh, a couple of dates, and so a year later, I I asked from I said how would you feel if I called Sandy and asked her out, uh, and he said fine with me, and so then. Sandy and I started dating, and and then eventually uh, I was still at camp, and she came up to camp in '63 uh, to visit me during post camp. I was up there for a few days, and I actually asked her to marry me in the waterfront shack. Very nice. Well, that is wonderful. You meet Sandy, and you decide to get married. Now she's going to come be a par- part of the permanent fixture of camp. So I assume at that point is when you guys move into. Well, we got married in '64. And then uh, Sandy and I lived in a room in the back of the lodge. Uh, there was only one room at that time, uh, next to where the, the blanket room was called. Yeah. And it was really hard for her because I, I was busy from 7 o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock at night. Sure. And she didn't have any role at camp. So it was difficult. Her initial experience at camp was not great in terms of loving camp. Yeah. But then things started to change. She got more accepted. The, um, the Pearl uh, was very protective of domains, you know. The office was part of her domain. Sure. Um, they didn't have a lot of visitors. Mickey and Reaver never had a lot of visitors. Sandy and I never had visitors at camp. Her parents came one time. My parents may or may not have come another one time. And then, so we got married. We went on our honeymoon and came back home and drove up to camp. 
you mentioned Mickey. When does Mickey become a staff man? Mickey Schwartz. Mickey was Mickey was always uh, an administrator. But when I first started, he would miss a couple of weeks of camp every year for his Army Reserve. Oh, I see. He was already old enough at that point. I thought for some reason you guys were closer in age. But oh, I guess he's he's a few years, a few older, years older than older, me. That's but right. Not. not I, I wasn't real tight with Mickey in the early days. You know, as a counselor on cabin thirteen. You know, he wasn't there the whole summers. Right. And our relationship grew after I became involved with the program. Then we had a day-to-day uh, relationship develop. What is that? So just if explain it to me, not being there. What does that look like uh, as far as the two of you? What, do you? what are the jobs you do? What are the jobs he does? How does that work with camp and, and on the whole? Uh, well, I was a program administrator. You know, you can call it program director, but... I, I planned the program every day, and I did all the staff assignments. And uh, then I would deal with staff issues. So I, I was technically called the program director and head counselor. And that, that's what I did. And Mickey did, uh, had very little interaction with the kids. Hmm. So Mickey spent a lot of time, you know, working with the kids, making sure they were happy. And I was doing the staff stuff. Gotcha. Because it seems that... Uh, over time, and this is something a lot of guys have talked about, that the two of you working together, a lot of guys will talk about that being part of the success of camp, part of the recipe for success is your ability to work together. Well, Mick is, uh, and I are, uh, well, we both loved camp. Uh, we both love the kids. Uh, he is a very, very creative guy. Uh, some of it probably wasn't developed as much because of you know, Al was Al, and like we have uh, the Snack Shack now. Mm-hmm. That was really Mickey's idea years ago. He wanted to build an A-frame building to give out stuff like that, hmm. and Al didn't think it was necessary or, or whatever happened with it. Uh, Mick has even developed games. I mean, he's extremely creative. Hmm. And so I was probably one of the few people that he shared all his ideas with. So I get a lot of credit for doing things, and t- t- to a certain extent a lot of motivation came from some of the things that he did hmm. like uh, after I became program director one year Al didn't want to raise tuition at camp so we went from an eight week camp to a seven week camp hmm. we got everything in in seven weeks wow <laughs> it was pretty intense I would imagine yeah. so the following year we went uh, back to an eight week camp so now I had to add new things to the program because we already showed that we could do the program <laughs> in seven weeks. Sure. And that's how the Olympics got started. That's how Trojan Spartan got started. So we came up with Trojan Spartan. Now Mick was originally Caesar. Ah, okay. I mean, the earliest pictures I have seen, obviously you're Caesar, I think, in the, in the earliest ones I've seen, but maybe there just aren't pictures. Well, it was easier for me to make sort of an ass out of myself, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it was sort of expected. Sure. <laughs> but in those days, I mean, I was Caesar. We used to have what we called the Ojibwe Singers. Our music program in those days, we had specialists. We had the Ojibwe Singers. We entertained. We did a lot of things. And I'm looking forward to reuniting that this year. Mm-hmm. On the 4th of July, I was the Statue of Liberty, dressed as the Statue of Liberty. Sure. You know. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> There was a cannon, right? Wasn't there a cannon at some point? Oh, we always had a cannon. We used a cannon every day doing flag lowering. Oh, every day. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. 
We used to have. I thought lot. it was just brought out for like no Fourth of July. No, we uh, had a lot of lineups. Um, because in those days, for the program, you had a lineup and it was announced. You didn't have correct. like today. We have it. We print it out. And yeah, put it one in of the things I wanted to do was to uh, eliminate dead time, mm-hmm. and so I got away from a lot of lineups. Uh, we used to line up for breakfast. We used to line up for the program. We used to line up for everything. We used to line up for flag raising. I, well, that was breakfast. We used to line up for flag lowering because every meal was a buffet. And at flag lowering, uh, and we had a regular bugler, not the other stuff. And that right. would be pretty neat if we could get back to having a, someone that could That'd be amazing. play the bugler. I'd love to have that. And we had a, a, you know, a little cannon, and uh, we fired it off. I don't... I don't know where it is. Things tended to disappear. But but in that time period, as you said, and working with Mickey, you got really creative. In the days when I first started, the little kids were sort of left out. PC wasn't a... I don't even know if it existed. And I always felt that competition would be, would be more meaningful in terms of development of self-esteem if you played more games with uh, kids your own age. Hmm. And I never really liked... The JCs used to play in Watermelon League. That was part of their compensation. You know, they would weigh tables and sure. play in Watermelon League. And what a deal! <laughs> yeah. Well, they loved it. They never complained right. about it. Oh, I know what I was. We were talking about Trojan Spartan and how it started. And I do have a question for you. So, maybe you can clear up this controversy. Maybe you can't. The very first Trojan Spartan ended in a tie. No other Trojan Spartan has ever ended in a tie. Can you, uh, would you like to comment on whether or not that was a legitimate tie or perhaps it was just the right way to end that game? Uh, that question would uh, be a smirch on my integrity. <laughs> uh, w- 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 one of the things, there were never Rosen points at Camp Ojibwe, ever. Um, would you like to explain what that means? No. Okay. <laughs> if you know that, what it means, you know what it means. Right. I mean, you know, but there, there were, were never Schwartz, points. Supposedly Schwartz points. Sure. I never saw it. I never felt it. Well, I was never aware of it because that's not. I mean, I, I still don't believe to this day that if if they were everything being equal, you know, you may want to give it to one of your relatives. Sure. But it has to be fairly close to equal. It's not like uh, any team a Schwartz child was on regardless of how the quality of it that, that they got thing. Right. See, that's, that, that thing is blown totally out of proportion. Sure, sure. But to the other extent, I think I was probably harder on the Rosen kid. Mm. Plus, he didn't be, you know, I mean, he wasn't born to 69. Uh, didn't become a camper till maybe, I think he was five or six, six years old. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. So you have the pleasure, the joy of having two children at camp. Uh, how does that change your camp experience? It made Sandy's better. Hmm. Because she now had a specific role to play. And being a mother, being a mother with the kids at camp is fantastic because it's like a big playground for them. Sure. So uh, it didn't change my role very much at all. But it changed Sandy's. And it was great. She loved it. Yeah. And Rachel, obviously, once she becomes a certain age, she goes to Agawak, but David stays and is a camper at camp. Mm-hmm. And as you said, you might have been a little tough on him. Um, but is it Not like, at his younger age. No, oh, I see. 
that came later. Yeah, I mean, I didn't want him to ever think that because he was a Rosalind and his dad ran the program or owned the camp that he could get away with stuff. That's fair. You know, he's a pretty precocious kid. And uh, he always had a great intensity about him. Mm -hmm. And it was real hard for him at first because he was like the youngest kid for three years playing. Sure, that makes sense. He he wasn't real successful initially because everyone was so much older. I mean, I still remember he used to run to first and get thrown out and fall on the ground and throw his hat and kick the ground. <laughs> and I, I, uh, but he was I, I loved that intensity. Yeah. And he became his own person. Uh, p- people knew that he wasn't going to rat on him or be, you know, run to his daddy to tell him stuff. Sure. I'm real proud of him for that. It's not easy being... Uh, a child of, of a, a manager. Yeah, in absolutely. Situation. That's got to, that a was a very job. difficult job for him. But so. I think a lot of it had to do with there was no nepotism, you know, there was no favoritism. But the thing that that I'm real proud of is how he grew up at camp and the friends that he made at camp, the friends that he brought to camp, the leadership that he provided, and he. And uh, he developed a true love for camp. He loves camp. And that is the success story. That that would be the thing that I would say I remember most is that he was able to develop a true love of camp, and he did it on his own. Mm-hmm. We get to the 70s now, and you have the kids, and the kids are there. Mickey and Reva are there. Al and Pearl are getting a little older and stepping back a little bit. And you and Not Mac- too much. Okay. Not in the 70s. So I guess that's that's the question. So tell, talk, walk me through the 70s a little bit and what that's like, because at that point, you have, I mean, in my head, I'm going, oh, those guys are getting a little older. It's probably you guys taking over a little more. Well, I think y'all retired when he was 85. Mm-hmm. And so if you take off 15 years for the 70s, so that would make him 70. So when Al was 70, he, wa- he wasn't as a visual. Uh, his presence when he chose to make it known was, was still vital. But Mickey and I were running the camp. Mickey was the overall supervisor. I was uh, the director. I would deal with uh, situations as I felt. You know, my my uh, manners of being a leader have evolved over the years. I was probably a little more dictatorial, less flexible when I was younger. Uh, um, I, I'm able to get a lot more accomplished now by doing things. I I probably wasn't as much of a mentor. In those days, as as I was a a producer of quality programs or ideas and stuff, Hmm. but I didn't mentor people along the ways. That period of time, so historically speaking, the 70s is kind of a, as the 70s usher in, there's a bit of a change in in the camper that we get and the type of athletics that are, you know, the sort of the quality of the athletics and... Um, The primary changes occurred when uh, demographically... Camp went from a city camp to a suburban camp. Mm. You know, in the city, they didn't have the summer programs. And so what happened is that, uh, but that wasn't in the 70s, as I, as I recall. I think we still had started to have a lot of city kids still in the 70s. You know, Mickey lived in the city. Mickey was doing the primary recruiting. Mm. I became involved in the recruiting to a certain extent. Um, but we still had a lot of city kids, and the city kids just didn't stay home in the city. 
Gotcha. And so you attest the change in, in um, athletic ability, I guess, for lack of a better way to say it, the elite athletes. That changes as we move to the suburbs. I wouldn't uh, classify it as elite. I would classify it as, you know, kids that wanted to be involved in sports as they moved to the suburbs had additional pressures, whether they were an elite athlete or not. To, I mean, we've had over the years some of the finest athletes in the city of Chicago. Certainly. And uh, there was some carryover to that. You know, it was pretty cool that this year we had a f- two former campers perform one in the major leagues and the other in the NBA. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was very cool. It was very cool. But there's a lot of people that aren't in the NBA, and there's a lot of people that aren't professional basketball players. Sure. And the majority, you know, the vast majority of our camper population really wasn't impacted to the extent that some people say. Uh, and, and then the old-timers say, well, look, these kids aren't as good. The quality isn't as good. But the sportsmanship is better. The mm-hmm. intensity is just the same as it is to me. I have no problems with the kids busting their tail at camp but leaving the results at the, you know, not bringing it back to the cabin. I've worked hard to, to get that to be part of it, you know. Like, Ojibwa's always had a reputation of being, you know, athletic camp and a competitive camp. Well, to me, competition has to raise your level of self-esteem. So to me, competition means never quit. Just don't quit. I don't care if you're uh, in last place in collegiate. Don't quit. Have a sense of pride in yourself. Have have a level of dignity about your performance. Don't cheat yourself. Don't cheat your teammates. Uh, give it all that you can. My senior year in high school, I was captain of the football team. We didn't win a game. The second stringers won the city championship. <laughs> at, at the banquet, they said that their motivation was us. Because hmm. even though we didn't win a game, we never quit. That, that's what I'm so proud of. I mean, it's, it's not a question of winning at all costs. In the old days... When I first came there, they used to pick teams in front of kids. Hmm. And I would wonder, how does that help someone's self-esteem? You're an older kid and you're sitting there and some kid in Kevin Ford gets picked in front of you. I stopped all that. Yeah. That, that was a major change. Yeah, that, So competition sure. has to develop self-esteem. If it doesn't, then it's self-destructive. Um, I got rid of what I call the, uh, the, the parent mentality, you know. Parents, the little league parent with the yelling and the screaming mm. and the arguing with the umpires, I tried to get rid of all of that stuff. I just, um, that's not what sports are all about. You don't put extra pressure on your child by sitting out there yelling at them or yelling at the officials. What kind of role model is that for the kids? That certainly makes a lot of sense. And that is a huge change to what the camp what had sort of naturally been part of camp and then evolved out of yeah, camp. Yeah, but see, what, what happens is that a lot of the old-timers uh, say, well, camp's not as intense as it used to be. be- and that's a bunch of baloney. Camp is, competition at camp is greater than it ever was because it's, it's so keen because everyone is closer in abilities. You know, you don't have, especially the first four weeks when some of the better athletes aren't, aren't at camp. Mm-hmm. And the way that we've changed things with collegiate by having prep league, but it's, uh, I'm real proud of, I love telling people we have a competitive philosophy, but our philosophy deals with the development of self-esteem. 
there is a thin line between developing self-esteem and destroying it by being competitive. Mm. There comes a time in a young counselor's life when um, a door unlocks and they realize that the thing that they're at camp teaching is not the thing that they think they're there teaching. And for me, that moment happened when I realized that what we're doing here is not about sports. It's about self-esteem. And sports just happens to be the medium that we're painting with. But sports has nothing to do with it. Competition may or may not have anything to do with it. Ultimately, it's about self-esteem first. And that when we're doing however we choose to do it, for us, it happens to be sports and competition. Well, I I have developed over the years an idealistic mentality. Sometimes it's not realistic, but when I was a teacher, I taught a certain way for to, to try and develop leadership to, to come out. I mean, I was dictatorial, yeah, but I, I would inspire um, emergent leadership. Hmm. And when it works, I remember one time as a teacher, I went and got the superintendent to come to see my class. It was ideal if we could have put it on film that one day. Kids, leading kids. My high school was uh, won the Illinois State Championship in fitness for men and women. The reason is because I would take, the seniors had to take physical education, but then they could qualify to be PE leaders. So, you know, you had all of the, the cool guys that were PE leaders work with the low-level girls in terms of their fitness skills, and you had all the cheerleader pom-pom cute girls working with the the guys and their self-esteem was good. Mm. And I would work with all the the handicapped kids. You know, like I would have people come to me and say, Mr. Rosen, you're so mean. Because I had one boy in a wheelchair. I made him do the physical fitness test. His hands were bleeding because he had to go around the track in his wheelchair. And uh, everyone thought I was so mean. And his mother calls me and said, you know, Mr. Rosen, you're the first one to ever cheat my son normally. There's a lot of power in that. A lot of power in it. Uh, they transferred schools. Uh, this this boy and I were wed on a schedule. It said W-E-D. It means it stood for walk every day. The goal was to have him. He was confined to a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. The goal was to have him walk across the stage to pick up his diploma. Mm-hmm. And so every day, you know, I had a special walking belt. I would walk up and down stairs. I would support him, you know. Mm-hmm. And then um, I made him do pull-ups and sit-ups. And, I mean, he couldn't do these things, but it didn't matter. He could try to do the things. Mm-hmm. And so the message eventually, he, unfortunately, when he transferred, and then a year later his, his mom came back and said, the biggest mistake I ever made, Mr. Rosen, was taking David out of Ridgewood. Mm. Wow. Yeah, it's wow. powerful. Yeah. Powerful stuff like that. And so sometimes in my dogmatic style, it's because people don't get instant gratification from what they're doing, but it's not about instant gratification. It's about where you're going to be at down the line. Uh, Sure. We've got staff that are working at camp that got fired. Absolutely. Talk to them now and they'll they'll tell you, I was such a jerk then. Not me, but they were such a jerk then. Right. But just the fact that they're back now. What does that say about the ability to grow? And that they want to come back and do a better job to prove to themselves that, that they can. And to? Well, and to you. <laughs> right. Right. It's their way of paying back. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like 
okay, I was a real idiot at that time. I deserve what I got. I was really upset with you, but now I get it. You know, everyone doesn't get it at one time. It takes a while. But but I'm proud of that I've, you know, as, as, a, as the imagery of being a real, like, tough guy, let these kids come back. It's true. Soft touch. No, it's the right <laughs> thing to do. You're right. It is the right thing to do. And and there are times when, you know, there's certainly been times when I've even disagreed with, like, really, that guy? I mean, that guy, come on. Right. But ultimately, at the end of the day... So you know this is one of my philosophies. It's more important to do the right thing than be right. Yes, that's a hard one. That can be a very hard one. It is. But I try to keep that in my mind all the time when I'm dealing with it. Like, it's so easy to fire someone. It's so hard to keep someone. And it's so hard to allow them to come back. Mm -hmm. But I'm proud of that. I'm very proud of that. And Definitely. that's a hard thing to teach other people. Yeah. We're, we're off the subject now from Well, no, but I don't think we are. Frame. I think, but, but, but I think we're talking about some of the things that are very important about camp. You know, it's, again, it's very easy to think about camp in terms of we go there and we hang out, we have a great time, we play sports, and we go swim. And, but that's not... Yeah, kids don't get it until later That's not on. all what camp is. Right. And, you know, when you and I are talking about camp, we're talking about a bigger picture idea of what camp is and, and what we're creating. Well, as my role as camp is decreasing with my age and uh, Joel and Stu uh, being the functional directors of camp, I think that my role is to provide an opportunity to see things that they normally wouldn't see. You know, one of the things that I have developed is to see things no one sees and to be somewhere else. I could be at camp, but my mind is like on tomorrow. Certainly. Or the next day. So I call it having a vision. And I think Ojibwe has been so successful is because we do have visions. And the summer camp industry is not necessarily known for visionary thinking because why does it need to be? It's so easy to just relax into what it is. It's camp. It'll take care of itself. You bring a bunch well, of people that's together. Well, for the most you know. part. But how much more exciting is it to... So much more. You know, like I can't tell you if the people appreciate that every year I function with a different thing. I don't know if they like it or, you know, or don't like it, but I like it. Right. And so uh, as a teacher or as a camp director... I always thought that I, I was on the stage, and they were my audience. And uh, I would get emotionally drained after a day of teaching, especially sure. when you have to repeat yourself. You know, If you have five classes in a day, it's pretty hard to, to get that message across. It, it took a lot out of me. Yeah. But, but my level of enthusiasm and my level of intensity and my level of trying to get them uh, emotionally invested in, in what's going on there, had nothing to do with the results of what they were doing. It had to do with the effort of what they were doing. And the same thing applied at camp. You know, like, I, I, how do you get people to be motivated? How, how, do you get, uh, how do you get across to the staff that, that their decisions are so impactful? Mm -hmm. They get themselves in trouble. It, it impacts so many people in, in such a bad way. And when I talk to other camp directors, you know, I'll ask them, like, okay, well, what do you do? Kids are smoking marijuana, and they'll say, we fire them. And I say, that's reactive. What do you do proactively? Right. So we do things proactively. We build a building that is called a staff retreat because philosophically I say, I'm hiring you to be responsible for someone else's children. I'm going to take away the responsibility for you to conduct yourself appropriately. 
because I don't trust you. Right. It doesn't make sense. It's ludicrous. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely ludicrous. But on the other hand, I'm also dealing with 18 and 19-year-olds or even 20-year-olds who now have a place that they could do things and feel safer than doing them somewhere else. And so they may get caught doing inappropriate things in terms of alcohol or drug use, and then the place gets shut down. And then it stays shut down until I get aggravated and try to add, figure out what, why is it shut down? Why aren't we trying to open it up again? You know, and it, it's okay for it to fail, but there has to be growth each time it fails. What's the next thing? So we developed a program. Now, this year we're going to have a different program. Why? Because I'm not particularly satisfied with the results of the old program, but we still have to be proactive. Mm-hmm. That was sort of rambling, but... No, but all of that boils down to... It goes right back to the self-esteem issue. You know, you talk about the retreat, and you talk about, you know, we'll trust you with these... We'll trust you with a cabin full of 10-year-olds, but we won't trust you to be a responsible 16- or 17-year-old on your own. But it's self-esteem. When I trust you to be a responsible 16- or 17-year-old on your own, you will be a better staff man to those 10-year-olds because I trust you, and you understand that respect. Absolutely. I think in the big picture... You know that the staff retreat has been a big thing personally to me. Sure. I can't speak for other people. I mean, I don't know if it'll even exist in the future. It is a... There'll be a time when the, uh, the, the newer directors are going to have to make decisions on what's important to them. Right. I can all... Uh, at that point in time, I'm going to have to let them make those decisions because they're the ones that will be running the day-to-day situation. Yeah. So getting back to an earlier question... I would run the day-to-day situation camp. Um, Al used to wake the kids up, put them to sleep. He phased himself out of that. Mickey used to do that then. Then there was a period of time uh, when Mickey and I would switch off, and I would do it sometimes. Uh, And and so Al became uh, a figurehead. Uh, Al would spend a lot of time in the kitchen. Hmm. And Mickey spent a lot of time around camp being seen and I spent a lot of time in being as meticulous as I could in running the program in 67 when, when I was not at camp for you know reasons we can't discuss reasons that yep. we can't discuss uh, because of security risk sure um, George Sachs Dr. Sachs ran the program did he did he ever tell you this story <laughs> yes he, he took this he took the 1966 program and just change the dates <laughs> and added the new people because it was so structured. Right, right. And the reason that I do that is because it saves me time. And, and a meticulous program streamlined camp in a way that made a lot more things possible. Oh, yeah, especially when we eliminated so many of the lineups. Right. So, and we eliminated wasted time with free periods and uh, the buffet meals... I think are faster than the sit-down meals. Well, let's get to it. So now, 70s passed, the 80s are coming, and in 85, Al decides he wants to retire. So camp. Okay, that is it. Another one in the books. Dennis Rosen, part one. A little bit of a cliffhanger there. 
we kick off episode two talking about the transition of camp taking over telling that story so come back for that on thursday when that episode drops if you want to get in touch with the podcast you know how drop me an email christopher at campojibwahistory.org swing by the site check out the warrior updates some more new stuff those audio updates going up in the next week or so make sure you check it out also you may recall that I had talked about there were some changes going on with the bandwidth and there are going to be some podcast episodes disappearing from the site. A generous benefactor has offered to fund a secondary site that will be used uh, strictly for archiving purposes. So there will be a secondary site where all the episodes are going to live, hopefully forever. In one spot, you'll be able to go there and listen to all of those just by itself. Um, having said that, when I talked about making them available in different ways, some people were still interested. So I think we're also going to still have that as a possibility, uh, potentially doing flash drives of collected episodes and even uh, some CDs maybe if people want individual episodes. I know some people have challenges with the technology. So more to come on that front. That is it. It is a sweaty, sweaty day here in Chicago. That's not going to stop me from going out back here at 1549 and having a cigar. <laughs>